everyone, and welcome to my sauntering podcast. My name is Paul White, and I live in a gorgeous place called Weymouth, and this podcast is a collection of saunters that were born in lockdown, but it's also got some additional stuff which is just fresh, hot off the press. I'm praying that you'll be really blessed and that God will speak into your heart as we take this journey together. So please go ahead and hit the subscribe button to keep updated with the very latest sauntering podcasts. Good morning saunterers. Welcome to another lovely sunny day. I have a parasol today to keep me shaded, which is super nice. So um, nice to be outside in the fresh air, enjoying the gorgeous smell and sounds of summer. Um, So today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And so Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to us today. We invite you into our hearts. Holy Spirit, come. And Lord, just take these words and help them to make sense to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, Kathy. Great to see you. And uh, good morning, everyone on Prayer House Radio. Today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and this is a challenging one. I don't mind admitting it. And Paul hits on two kind of pretty big issues, and hopefully we'll be able to at least get somewhere with it today. So Paul, remember, had just made this final statement in chapter um, 10, which was be imitators of me, and it's included in chapter 11, the first verse of chapter 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so what Paul's saying is, look at me, look at the values that I live according to and copy that, imitate that, and we're on track. And so Paul was confident enough that his life was authentic as a believer and as an example for people to follow. He wasn't squeamish about saying, imitate my faith, imitate me, imitate the way I live. And we have to accept that if we're in any kind of leadership, people will, to some extent, automatically look at us and judge our message by how we live. And so we need to kind of make sure we're doing that and we're living the stuff we preach and not just being somebody who preaches theories that they don't apply to their own lives. Good morning, Fran and Phil and Pete. It is a gorgeous day, isn't it? So now we're going to get onto this hot topic here. So verse 2 says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand... So now maybe Paul is being slightly sarcastic because I don't think they did remember everything Paul said or take notice of everything. But he's kind of trying to bring some positivity into the discussion. So he's saying, I commend you because you do take notice of me. And he says, verse three, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Now, this is obviously contentious in our current day and age, our current culture. 
to suggest that somehow the husband has a positional kind of something or other that makes him the head of the marriage. Now let's just read what Paul says. Let's read it in context. He says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Now, let's just put down our weapons just for a second. Um, and when Jesus, when Paul says the head of Christ is God, we know, those of us who've been around Christian teaching any length of time, know that the mainstream view that is considered to be orthodox, that is the right, true theology, is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but that the Son and the Father are of the same substance. It's like Jesus said himself, I and my Father are one. It's like we're not in disagreement about anything. But he also said things like, I only do what I see the Father doing. And so somehow in the Godhead that exists in three persons of equal and identical substance, if you like, and identical nature, somehow there is a recognition of the Father as the head of the Godhead. Now, that is a very difficult one for us to understand. It's very difficult for us to get our heads around. <clears throat> but if we can understand that this is the context Paul's introducing this topic of headship in the marriage. This is the context he's using to introduce that con context. So, concept. That's the context for the concept. Right, we got there. So, it, it, it's impossible to say that Jesus is less than God the Father without creating a heresy. So to say that somehow the wife is less than the husband is to create a heresy, is to create a false doctrine, something that is not true. However, this is to do with order and it's, it's not to do with value or status. Now, there is a thinking that's current in our society at the moment that would say that men and women are interchangeable, that they are of equal value, true, that has to be true. They're of equal status, that has to be true. That's also entirely biblical, both of those statements. That, but there is something different about our role and our function on the earth simply because it is dictated by biology. So we can argue the toss philosophically, but biologically it's clear that women's bodies are designed and constructed in such a way as to be able to bear children. Men's bodies are not. That is a very, very clear biological distinction. Now we can tinker around with the superficial appearance and create something that looks like something else, but fundamentally inside, in the biology, under the hood if you like, the, um, the structure and the construction and the orientation of the body is very different. So there has to be, biology says there is a difference here. <laughs> and it's just folly to argue there isn't in my opinion. Now that doesn't imply value or even status and this is not about status or value, this is about an order in God's 
in God's heart, I guess. And somehow there is a thing when, say, when Adam and Eve took the fruit, God confronted Adam. He didn't confront Eve. And so there was this thing of, come on, Adam, you have failed somehow to be the kind of head in this relationship. You failed to show leadership and take the right and to set the right course in this relationship and we could go on and on and on about that in endless books and endless blogs and endless discussions have been had about it and I don't think that my opinion is going to sway the balance but what I am saying is I think if we just look at the very simple biology we have to say there is a difference and Paul says it here but it's in the context of God the unity within the Godhead this idea of headship so then he goes on to this other this next thing which is more mystifying than anything for us I think he says verse 4 every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head well anyone who knows anything about Judaism will tell you that today Jewish men cover their heads with a skull cap when they pray as far as that's as far as I know maybe someone knows different but this seems to be contrary to what Paul's talking about here but he says every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven for if a wife will not cover her head she should cut her hair short but since it is disgraceful Listen to all of this language. This is so unusual for us. It's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head. Let her cover her head. Now, Paul, it has to be understood that Paul is talking at a time, and I hate to do this, but where the culture was very different to ours. I try to take the principles of the scripture and make them you know and kind of keep them intact without trying to argue the culture argument all the time which means we end up with a bible that's wafer thin and we hardly believe any of it but but at the time of Paul's writing it was customary for men to have short hair and for women to have long hair and there were all kinds of things going on with prostitutes and stuff like that and men selling their bodies for sex and so on that kind of made Paul, I think, try to underline, listen, let's make it clear there's a difference here between the man and the woman. Let's let's get away from this ambiguity where all the boundaries are blurred and, and we don't know where we are. But he... But, it, let me let me read on. But in 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 um, Greek and Roman and Jewish culture, the women all covered their heads in public. Married women covered their heads in public, so it was a sign, an indication that they're actually married. They're not available. They're in a covenant with somebody else, and so that was the accepted norm all across the regions that Paul was preaching in and so on if you go to india today it's very normal there to see the married women with their heads covered even from a hindu background it's nothing to do with islam and we don't actually see the islamic veil in any early paintings and art of kind of those that era suggesting that that was what paul was talking about either so we're not going to be introducing hijab at the prayer house anytime soon as the requirement for um, 
women to wear when they're worshipping God. Good morning, Dave and Sarah. And then he goes on and he takes this thought a bit further. So he says, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. That one, I think we could think about for a long time and have lots of different views on. I think probably neither um, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Well, according to the Genesis account, Adam was alone, he was a man, he was male, and God said, this is not a good situation, so he took from the man and made a woman for him, which must have been a wonderful gift, a wonderful blessing, but it is a mistake to think that the man owns the woman. And Paul was saying yesterday, a couple of days ago, that actually when we're married, our bodies belong to each other. So my, belong, my body belongs to my wife and hers belongs to me. And we have shares in each other's bodies. So hence we should look after them, make them nice and attractive as much as we can and keep them healthy and strong. Good morning, Tracy Ann. To honour our spouse. So Paul's saying right here, the man was not made for the woman, but the woman for the man. Right, now that, I know this provokes all kinds of issues. So <laughs> it does, I know it. Um, so he says, that, that is why a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now that, I think, is a whole big question because in our society today we don't have an in in the west at any rate in the west in western europe and the us and canada and so on and latin america there is no equivalent of the 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 head covering or the scarf or whatever that women wore in those days and so it's hard for us to make any sense of this because it and the nearest thing we have to an indication that we're married is the wedding ring but then both wear that and the sort the argument goes round and round but there is something to do with order in the church meetings that Paul says is to do with the angels and there needs to be a kind of recognition of order because angels are looking on and they are looking to see the mysteries of God unfolded in the church. And Paul wants them to have a ringside seat of the greatest show in town and see believers who love God, who submit to each other, who worship God in that humility and surrender and sacrifice and all the rest of it that we know and love. Right. This is where he's going with it all. It's all in this context of laying our lives down, of giving up our rights to, because we are sold out for this beautiful higher purpose of knowing him and loving him. But then he goes on to say, verse 11, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now man is born of woman. And all things are from God. So he says, like, we have this interdependency between the sexes that is a wonderful woven together thing that was initiated in the heart of God. So let's not complain about it and fuss and bother about it and fight against it, but let's enjoy it and celebrate it. 
So judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So Paul's saying, stop arguing about this. But then he makes his... (laughs) It's a difficult argument again, I'm afraid, because all the way throughout the Bible, we hear of people who were called Nazarites, who were men and women set apart for God, who had just given themselves over to him, and they would take a vow that their hair wouldn't be cut, they wouldn't shave. And so, I don't know what the women looked like, but the men certainly had long beards and long hair, and the women would have had long hair. And when they showed up in the village, there was something about them that was different they didn't drink alcohol they didn't eat grapes or raisins and there there was they were very holy people who had set themselves apart by a vow and they were called Nazarites and so they had long hair and it was no disgrace for the man then Absalom we know had long hair he was the king he got himself in trouble but I, <laughs> that's another story but um it was more about his heart than his hair Um, And someone famously said that preachers should do more to concern, concern, sorry, should concern themselves more with the length of their sermons than the length of the congregation's hair, which is probably a good guideline. But um, the priests in the Old Testament had to have tidy hair. They weren't allowed to have dreadlocks or, you know, um, long hair. They were supposed to be kind of well presented in the sense of clean and smelling nice and fresh as <laughs> they were ministering to God there's an interesting thought so um but verse 16 I think Paul is saying is if anyone's inclined to be contentious we do not have such practice or sorry we have no such practice nor do the churches of God and so what Paul is saying is listen let's settle this issue let's calm down let's come in line with the authority that God has established in the in the home and in the church to bring order and blessing and favor and so the angels look on with joy and there's no there's no sort of ambiguity or soliciting or prostitution or any of those things going on in the church which might be indicated by um kind of violating this understanding of the dress code of the time i think i'm going to park there if anyone wants to comment you please go ahead be nice however (laughs) let's try and do it in a courteous way in public so but in the following circumstances i do not commend you because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse for in the first place when you come together as a church i hear that there are divisions among you and i believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognised. So he's saying it's kind of inevitable that there will be some disagreements and that's fine. But there will be a recognition from God resting on people who are walking in the truth and whose kind of teaching and so on is correct and authentic. But you're going to disagree over things, but let's do it well and I think that's the important thing for us. Let's do it. Let, if we do disagree, let's do it well. Let's do it with grace and courtesy. And even over the whole um, issue that we've just been talking about, the first few verses, let's 
do it well. When we disagree, when we discuss it, let's do it with respect and honor for each other. But he says that um, when you come, so I'm not happy with you about this because when you come together, it is not for better, but for worse. Now, that is a dreadful thing to say about a church, that when they come together, it would be better if they hadn't. It would be better if they'd all stayed at home and, <laughs> and not come together to worship because they're letting God down when they do. And he says, verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So Paul's saying, because when, when these guys came together to share communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, whatever you are accustomed to calling it, they combined it with a meal and they sat around a big table or they all sat in this courtyard in, or in a room and they shared the food together. And Paul's saying, some of you are just coming in and troughing it all down like a greedy hog and disregarding the other people around you. And some of you are getting drunk at this meal, which is supposed to be remembering this solemn, most solemn thing of the whole Christian message, which is the blood of Jesus being poured out as a payment, as a ransom for yours and my sin. He says, this is appalling. If you're going to eat and drink, if you're depending on this meal to get fed, eat at home. And he says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? And what Paul's really saying is surely you should let those who are really genuinely hungry and haven't got much food, that you should let them go first. Because bear in mind the context of this letter is all about laying down our lives, putting down our rights. Yes, of course, everyone is welcome. Everyone is invited and the rich and the poor are invited to this meal, of course, and everyone is equal in the eyes of God. But when there are people there who are abject, uh, in abject poverty, I should say, then goodness sake, let them go first and honour them and come, come on, sort it out. And so he says, shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received... From the Lord, what I also delivered you, and this is a really foundational understanding of the um, communion meal and the whole ceremony or ritual or whatever you want to call it, practice of sharing Holy Communion. And this is, we understand our doctrine, our teaching on the Lord's Supper through this passage to a great extent. So he says, for I received to the Lord what I also delivered to you that... The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. This was the Last Supper, wasn't it? He took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. It's interesting, he didn't say it's broken, although some some manuscripts insert that in there. It, my body is for you. It's a gift. I'm giving myself for you. And he says... Um, that when he broke it, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when we come together with the ceremony or the, the practice of communion, 
we're remembering Jesus. He, it's him who it's all about. It's not all about me. Look at me. Oh, look, aren't I great? I'm a, such a good Christian. It's not about that. It's about him. It's about honouring him. So he says, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, anyone who understands anything about covenant cannot skip over that statement. This is the new covenant in my blood. This is the seal. This is the thing that makes the covenant real and binding. It's like God is sealing that covenant in his own blood. This is momentous, incredible, staggering and that makes the that's why we come to this meal with a degree of sincerity and humility and reverence and awe and it's not something it's not something where we have to be super pious and talk in a weird voice but it's where we recognize the significance of what's going on here that somehow as we come whether we come to the front to the communion table and we kneel in front of a priest or somebody like that or whether we get a cup passed to us and we have a sip of it we're in our hearts we're like whoa this is for me this is for me this bread is the body of Jesus for me and so he says, do this and remember me. So then he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, Jesus, we've said probably many times in different contexts, you've heard it say that the bread and wine is the sort of elemental meal. It's a very simple, basic meal that people ate in those days and still do. And around the world, particularly, I was saying about the French, particularly the French, who would break some bread and drink the wine. And it's normal as part of their lives. And Paul's saying, do you know what? Bring it into every day. And Jesus was saying, bring it into every day. Whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Thank me for my body. It is a communal thing. It is a sacred thing. But you can do it as a family. You can do it in just in private, can't you? You know, in your own home or wherever. Therefore, verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, unworthy. We are all unworthy. That's how it works. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying when, of course you're unworthy. That, that's the, the gospel is the only re- the Christian faith is the only religion you have to be bad enough to join so of course we're unworthy but we are made worthy because of Jesus and what he has actually done and so the very thing that we're enacting here when we share this meal together is saying Do you know what I was unworthy but Jesus has made me worthy to sit at his table wow and partake of this covenant meal but he's saying don't come in a kind with your heart in a dirty state you know with your with with a bad attitude with rebellion or hostility or 
pride or arrogance or any of those things, but sort that out before you show up. He says, verse 28, let a person examine himself or herself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So eat of the, so we're having examined ourselves then in that condition, so eat of the cup, uh, the bread and drink of the cup. Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, there's two bodies here, isn't there? There's the body of Christ, which is the church. And we need to discern the value of the church that we are in. We need to view it as Jesus does. And even again, the emblems of bread and wine, the blood and body, the body and blood of Jesus indicate the value that Jesus places on the church. He's saying, come on, discern this, see this, but also understand the significance of the thing that you're taking into yourself. This is not the actual body of Jesus, but it's a picture. It's a profound thing that is more than just symbolism. There is a spiritual moment where Jesus inhabits somehow that action, that thing, as we come together and share communion, somehow Jesus is right there in the middle of it all with us by his spirit, but in person he's there. And sometimes I've experienced his presence in such a profound way, I'm completely wasted. You know, it's like, whoa, God. And so he says, don't do this because if you drink it and and eat it without discerning the body you bring judgment on yourself verse 30 that is why many many of you are weak and ill and some have died but if we judged ourselves truly we would not be judged but when we are judged by the lord we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world so he's saying sort it out in your own heart because what you don't want is god to have to bring a form of discipline on you which makes you weak or sick or something like this and he's saying actually people who have been trivializing what they're doing here and they've reaped in themselves a kind of judgment now we we can only speculate what paul is actually referring to there but it was prominent enough for paul to have heard about it and to put two and two together it's certainly not for you and i to judge and say that's because you 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 you're sick because you did that that's not a helpful process at all but we do need to just guard our own hearts when we're approaching the lord's table and make sure that we've put our um life straight with him and confessed our sin and all that kind of thing verse 33 so then my brothers when you come together to eat wait for eat for one another if anyone is hungry let him eat at home so that when you come together it will not be for judgment about the other things i will give you directions when i come so Paul's kind of setting the scene there and he's saying, yeah, there's, I know there's more we could answer in your, you know, about these things, but I will talk about them when I get there in person. But for now, here's the principles and the principles are consistent throughout this incredible letter. It's about laying our lives down for each other and not insisting on our rights, but surrendering our rights because we voluntarily made ourselves a servant of Jesus and a servant of others. So may God bless you and keep you today. And if you're sharing communion, may God, may the presence of Jesus be all over you. 
And however you're worshipping God today, may his presence just fill your heart and life and your family be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen.